He's on, joined the uh, worship team this morning, having joined the church. Now he's using his skills up here, and we're grateful. And it's always good to see our special guest star, Quentin Witherell. He's here occasionally. Best use of nepotism right there. And, uh, we are grateful for that. Well, I noticed as the children were le- uh, leaving here, there was a lot of them that left, creating a little bit more room in here. Uh, it's crowded. It's crowded everywhere. Some of you will be happy to know that the air conditioning came on, 60-something degrees in January, and the room is very full, and the air conditioning came on to uh, keep us cooler uh, in this building. There, there are necessary adjustments that take place in a congregation when God, by his kindness, brings a lot of people to it. If, you have, if you've been around for a while, be sure to reach out and introduce yourself to one of the newer faces and, and uh, welcome them, uh, and uh, um, let's make them, for Christ's sake, feel glad to be here uh, with us as we worship. Uh, there's a lot of people here, and there's a lot of people in the fellowship hall, uh, and uh, we're grateful. Uh, Let's uh, pray, shall we, this morning? Father, we come before you, and we do so gladly. You are the God of all the nations. All the nations are as drops in a water of a bucket in comparison to you, or grains of sand in a pile of dirt in comparison to you. You are great and sovereign. And uh, with gladness, we have already prayed this morning that you would show mercy to the people in Puerto Rico We would pray your mercy too, Father, for uh, those in Australia, that land that is on fire. Uh, It is grievous to see and uh, hear all of the suffering that is happening because of this inferno that has engulfed so much of that land. Show kindness, mercy, Lord. For our brothers and sisters who are trying to worship, will try to worship on, on Sunday uh, in Australia, how um, how weary they must feel. Would you refresh them through the fellowship of the brothers and sisters that they meet with? You instruct us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And this morning, we think not just of Jerusalem, but all of the Middle East and the turmoil that is taking place there. Lord, we, we have heard reports that many people in Iran are becoming followers of Jesus. And Christianity is spreading in that country. Lord, we pray, as you have instructed us to, for the governmental leaders in that nation. We pray, Father, how, how could this be? But we ask you that there would be peace in that land so that the gospel could spread freely and that our brothers and sisters there who are suffering dearly for the sake of Christ, that they might find the freedom and joy to follow Jesus openly and gladly. Lord, uh, we see in these calamities that we read about in the newspaper writ large the turmoil that often grips our own hearts. Lord, often we feel aflamed with various and conflicting desires and lusts and, and envies and greeds. And, and we feel often in our homes, in our lives at work, the angry uh, uh, tirades, the, the uh, tempers flare. And we feel in our own minds and hearts the imbalance and the shakiness, uh, as it were, of an earthquake. So we come to you today for help. As we turn to your word, we recognize that it is a sharp tool in your hands. 
So divine surgeon, we pray this morning that you would operate on us truly and carefully today. Say to us the things that we need to hear that we sometimes don't want to. Comfort us, encourage us, teach us, relieve us. Grant us mercy in the midst of our griefs and sorrows. To that end, I I think in particular of uh, Cheryl Bittner and her family and the loss of her brother this week and her parents. What a grief to bury a son. Show them mercy, we pray, as, as various members of that family are scattered throughout Manor Township for worship today. Ah, speak to them by the Spirit through your word. Lord, for all of us, we pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. You who are our rock, our God, and our Redeemer. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. My favorite part of Mrs. Barcelona's reading class in third grade was toward the end of the hour. If there was some time, if we'd finished our work and if there was some time left before we had to go, Mrs. Barcelona would pick up a book and read to us all. She was good at it. This is how I first heard about James and his giant peach. Uh, The best days of class were when Mrs. Barcelona read a choose-your-own-adventure story. Um, I think I was in school during the golden days of choose-your-own-adventure stories. Uh, If you're not familiar with them, let me describe them to you briefly. Uh, Choose-your-own-adventure stories are quick stories with a lot of suspense, a lot of mystery, and a lot of action, and you are the main character. As the books begin, uh, for example, you're on a plane that crashes in the Himalayas. Or uh, you're on an expedition looking for treasure in the Amazon jungle. And the books would begin, there'd be two or three pages describing the action. And then you, have, you come to a point at the end of a page where you have to make a decision. The narrator challenges you this way, they ask you a question. You come, for example, to a particular spot in the jungle and you can go to the uh, uh, right or you can go to the left. And if you want to go, the book will say, if you want to go left, turn to page 86. And if you want to go to the right, turn to page 73. And then you turn to that page and the story continues. Uh, Then after two or three pages, you have another choice. Um, Do you pick up the diamond-encrusted dagger you found in the mummy's coffin, or do you leave the diamond-encrusted dagger there? If you pick it up, turn to page 34. And if you leave it there, turn to page 47. Uh, You weave your way through the book. You could read the book four or five times and make different decisions at each point and see how they turned uh, uh, turned out. Some of them ended well. You find the treasure. You go home to international acclaim. Some of them did not end well. You fall off a cliff and die. Dark story for third graders. Uh, When Mrs. Barcelona read the stories to us in class, she'd come to a point of decision and we would vote about which uh, choice we were going to make. When I used to read them myself... I would try to figure out which was the best way to make it through the book. So I would keep my finger at all the pages where there was a point of decision as I was reading and trace all the... T- and, and if you came to a point, oh, no, this is a bad choice. You've got to go back and make the other choice, trying to trace my way through. To, to read the book successfully, or at least to get to the happiest conclusion, you had to be able to understand every choice and all of its consequences. I think that's the way some followers of Jesus 
talk about decision-making, how they talk about following God's will. God knows the perfect path that you should take. And before you make any decision, you have to figure out what he has planned for you and how it will turn out. And once you know that, and only then can you make a decision. Uh, We're spending some time in the month of January talking about the will of God. This is not our normal practice. Our normal practice is to move systematically through books of the Bible. Lord willing, the first Sunday in February, we're going to start in the book of Matthew. Uh, But for the month of January, we're talking about the will of God, specifically about the will of God and how it relates to the decisions that you make. As followers of Jesus, as Christian people, we want to make decisions that honor God, that please Him. And we have a little bit of mixed motives, too, because we believe that God's goodwill for us actually will work out for us the best. We want to please him, but we believe because he's a good God that pleasing him actually will work out for us, too. Hmm. Traditionally, some Christians have talked about um, decision-making this way. God has a plan for your life. We'll call it his individual will for you. He has a plan A for your life. And it encompasses everything about your life, who you marry, where you work, where you live, where you go to college, what car you buy, everything. It's his plan A. And good decision-making involves figuring out what God's plan A is Because you could miss God's plan A and marry the wrong person. Some of you are thinking, yeah, I'm sitting next to him. No, 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 no. We'll talk about that in a minute. You can miss God's plan A and buy the wrong car or take the wrong job or go to the wrong college. And then you're left with second best, God's second best for you. Hmm. I don't think that that is the most biblical way to talk about decision-making. I think the Bible emphasizes decision-making according to wisdom. I have two goals for this morning. First thing I want to do is I want to explain what I mean by making decisions according to wisdom. I want to give you a basic architecture of wise decision-making. And along the way, I hope to show you, this is my second goal, why walking in wisdom is a better, a more biblical way to talk about making decisions than trying to find God's elusive plan A for your life. So, follow me here, the architecture of biblical, wise decision-making. First is a summary statement, and then I want to unpack it, the pieces of it this morning. So here's a summary. Within the boundaries of biblical teaching, God gives you the freedom and responsibility to make a wise decision, trusting him to be at work. So within the boundaries of biblical teaching, God gives you the freedom and responsibility to make a wise decision, trusting him to be at work. There's four elements in that summary statement. Let's take them one at a time and and walk through them. First, the boundaries of biblical teaching, or to put it more directly, in order to make a wise decision, you need to first consider the biblical boundaries. Consider the biblical boundaries. Uh, Last week, uh, we focused on how the Bible talks about the will of God. The Bible talks about God's will of decree. He is sovereign over everything that happens. And and then we talked about his will of desire, uh, which is a reflection of God's goodness, his character, his, his greatness, the things that are in keeping with the full breadth of who God is. When I talk about biblical boundaries, I'm talking about God's will of desire, what he commands us to do. 
We don't always do what God commands us to do, but the Bible tells us what God would have us to do. He restricts the choices that we make. You can find biblical boundaries on the page, every page of Scripture, and it's possible to collect the wisdom that he has about certain topics or the commands that he has about certain topics. Here's a very simple example. All right. Um, how does God want you to make a living? How does God want you to accumulate money so that you can pay for the things that you need? Ephesians 4.28 has one piece of biblical boundaries. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. How should a follower of Jesus make a living? This verse rules out thievery. So if you are ever in a career seminar and the leader of the career seminar says, okay, does anybody have ideas about what job they would like and how they'd like to make money? If you're a Christian, you cannot say larceny. All right? That is not acceptable. Uh, apparently, there were Christians in Ephesus who before they became believers, that's how they supported themselves, by stealing. Ephesians 4.28 closes that off as an option. Get the things you need by working, Paul says. Now, Ephesians 4.28 goes even further than that, though. It says, work so that you have enough left over to share with those in need. Here's actually an element of God's will uh, of desire for your spending. Don't steal, but work. And work and spend so that you have enough left over to, go, to give to those in need. Biblical boundaries. Actually, we could go a little further with the biblical boundaries here. Uh, those in need will especially include your family. 1 Timothy 5.8 Anyone who does not provide for their relative and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a strong statement. Work, don't steal. Work so that you have enough to share with those in need, especially your family members. Here are biblical boundaries that uh, uh, shape how you support yourself and how you spend what you earn. Biblical boundaries. Wise decision making involves knowing, first of all, what has God commanded, what God has commanded, and committing yourself to it. I think that this passage or this concept, biblical boundaries, is the focus of most of the biblical teaching about God's will. Most of the verses that people have traditionally used to talk about God's individual will, his unique will, his plan A for your life, are not actually about God's unique plan A for your life. They're actually about following the biblical boundaries. Two, two examples. All right. Look at, we were just in Ephesians. We'll go back to Ephesians 5. Again, these verses are all written on that blue sheet of paper. Um, Ephesians 5:17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Ah. Oh. I want to know what the Lord's will is. I want to know what God wants me to do. If you read around Ephesians 5.17, the Lord's will there is written out. And it's not about your individual choices. It's about the biblical boundaries. So, does anybody want to know what God's will is? I will tell you God's will for your life. It's in Ephesians 5.18. Here we go. You ready? Do not get drunk on wine. Don't do that. That's not God's will for you. Which leads to debauchery. 
Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is God's will. I wonder if you did God's will this morning. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Did you fulfill God's will today? Did you live up to God's will for your life on Sunday morning? This is God's will. Something similar, I think, happens in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Look, it's a great verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Now, some of you grew up like I did with the King James, and you know how Proverbs 3, 6 should end, right? Uh, It doesn't say, make your paths straight. It says, he will direct your paths. Trust him, submit to him, and he'll show you how to live. He'll show you what choices to make. Problem is that make your path straight is actually a better translation. But even more important is that the rest of chapter 3 teaches you what a straight path looks like. It teaches you what trusting in the Lord looks like and submitting to him looks like and having a straight path. For example, Proverbs 3, 3 says to honor, love, and faithfulness. Verse 9 says about honoring God with your money. You want to have a straight path in life? Honor God with your money. Verse 11 is about your response to God's discipline in your life. This is God's will for you. This is how to live. These are the boundaries the Bible draws around the options for life that we have. Now what's interesting about Proverbs 3, 5, we can pause here for just a minute, is that it acknowledges a truth that is all over the Bible. It's one that we as followers of Jesus accept. The truth is that we are not naturally inclined to trust in the Lord, nor to submit to him. That's why that warning is there. Don't lean, don't, don't lean on your own understanding. Don't rely on your own wisdom. We are not naturally inclined to submit to God. We are naturally inclined to lean on our own understanding. We want to do things our own way, not God's way. If, listen to this, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning. If you are serious about doing God's will and you really want to know what he wants you to do, you should recognize that that desire that you have to do what pleases God is itself a sign of the grace of God in your life. Because that's not a normal inclination of a human being. We normally don't want to do what God wants us to do. If you have this desire in you, that is a sign of the grace of God, him being at work in your life. I read this week that human beings on average over the lifetime begin between 55 and 113 diets. How many times have you started a diet in your life? On average, between 55 and 113. Some of you are sitting there thinking to yourself, let's see, there's 52 Mondays in a year. (laughs) Some of you are higher than average. Uh, But you know the transformation. If, if, If things go well for you in your diet, normally, before diet, you walk up to the buffet and you're looking for the desserts. What kind of cake do they have on this buffet? In time... If your diet works and it really sinks in and you really start to think, you stop looking for the desserts when you go out to the buffet and you say, broccoli. If that ever happens to you, some of you say it never happens to me. If that ever happens to you, 
you will say, what happened to my desires? They've been transformed. If, if you ever come to the will of God, come to the scriptures, and you say, yes, that is a sign that God is at work in you. Because you are not naturally inclined to submit to God. You are naturally inclined to follow your own way. When the Bible describes human beings, it wants you to think not about submissive, eager, obedient servants. That's not what we're like. Instead, it wants you to think about sugared-up toddlers at the farm show. It was farm show week in Harrisburg. Did you go? We've gone several times. Family fun. But if you have little children, the farm show is exhausting. Right? There's... You keep your kids with you, but there's so many things to look and touch and and chase and see and taste at the farm show. This is what you'll sound like. Hold my hand. Hold my hand. Hold my hand. Not that way. Come here. Come here. Stay with... No, no. We'll look at that later. Come on. Come on. Come with daddy. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. Come with... Come with me. Right? Right? Isn't that how you sound at the farm show? Huh. What you really need at the farm show is a sheepdog or a leash, one of the two, one of the two. Someone to help you corral your children. They run everywhere. It's exhausting. It's exhausting going and also a little bit adorable. Mostly exhausting, but a little bit adorable. When it comes to human beings and God's commands, it's not adorable. Here's the path that God has set out and we don't want to follow it. That's the natural inclination of every single one of us. We're rule breakers. We're authority despisers. We're leadership haters. We're submissive, averse people. Or more plainly, we're sinners. And our rebellion, of course, has disastrous consequences. The story of the Bible from the beginning to the end is how God in his glory reveals his glory rather by responding to the rebellion of the creatures that he has made. Through his son and his death on the cross, he rescues those who call on him for rescue and he destroys those who will not repent. So there are these constant reminders in the Bible. God constantly calling us, corralling his people. Come on now, come on now, hold my hand. Not that way. Hold my hand, come with me, come with me. All the way through the scriptures. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is one of those. Don't lean on your own understanding. Trust in him. He'll make your path straight. Biblical boundaries. There's one more thing about biblical boundaries that we should talk about before we move on. When we talk about biblical boundaries, we should remember that we are talking about the Bible as a sufficient guide for us. That it has for us everything that we need to make good decisions. It uh, thoroughly equips us. We read that. uh, Thoroughly equips us for every good work. It has in it what we need. This affirmation, I think, puts us in opposition to our brothers and sisters who believe that God gives them extra revelation, that, that God speaks outside of or in addition to the Bible to show us the way. Some of our fellow believers talk about extra revelation as if it's normal and common occurrence that you need and you want and you should expect. Don't you long for that sometimes you're trying to make a decision? If God would only send me a piece of paper with what I'm supposed to do on it, Right? Uh, sometimes, sometimes in the Bible, God has led his people. Those are the exceptions, not the rules. Uh, God has led his people through direct revelation. Those are, those are his 
the exceptions, not the rules. And, but what we have here, we believe this is sufficient. Now, I mention that because sometimes we have a soft version of this extra-biblical revelation, especially when it comes to making decisions. Sometimes we say things like, I feel God is leading me to, and you fill in the blank, uh, leave this job, end this relationship, go to another church. I feel God is leading me to, and you know what? The ugly part about that statement. When you say that, it's a, it's a very convenient way to end all future discussions and eliminate all questions. God is leading me. I have this feeling, I have this impression, I have this impulse that tells me what to do. And since it's God's message to me, since God is leading me this way, you have no right to ask me about it or to question the wisdom of my decision because God is leading me to do that. I don't think that's a good way to speak. God is leading me to, unless you have a verse, God is leading me to trust in the Lord with all my heart and not lean on my own understanding. That's okay. Uh, you, you, you may have a feeling, you may have an impulse, you may have a sense of what to do. That's fine. Are you sure it's from God? If it's not in the scriptures, how do you know it's from God? Do you remember when Ebenezer Scrooge first saw the ghost uh, Marley in his house? And Scrooge said, how do I know that you're really a ghost and not an undercooked piece of potato? How do I know that this impulse is really from God and is not an undercooked piece of potato? Huh. Here's what you do with that impulse, that sense. Measure it according to the objective standard of the Bible. Evaluate it by the biblical boundaries. It may be from God, but it might not be. If it fits with the Bible, uh, objective, if what the Bible objectively says, then act on it. Um. I can't remember who said it. It was somebody famous you would know his name, Spurgeon, Luther, something like that, said, never resist the impulse to pray. So if you have an impulse to pray, don't say, is this from God? Pray, because that's good. God wants you to pray. Measure those impulses objectively by the Bible, and if, if, the Bible, uh, if that impulse matches the Bible, go for it. But if that impulse contradicts the Bible, no sense of feeling that you have will make it right. The Bible's the objective, it's a sufficient standard. So, step one, in the architecture of wise decision-making, consider the biblical boundaries. Step two, accept the freedom that God has given you to make decisions. Accept the freedom that God has given you to make decisions. Rather than telling you to make decisions by trying to find God's perfect plan A, the Bible tells you to accept freedom within the biblical boundaries. And I want to show you that from Scripture, but one of the things that we should acknowledge up front here is that God, it's true that God knows everything about the decisions that you're contemplating. Um, let's say you're, you're going to buy a car and you have two choices. God knows which in the long run, which car in the long run will be cheaper and more reliable and get better gas mileage, be, according to your standards, a better choice. He knows that. Of course he knows that. He knows everything. He knows everything that's going to happen. He knows everything actual. He knows everything potential. He knows everything. He does not tell you, though, to make a decision by trying to figure out what he knows. He gives you the freedom to make a choice. 
some verses. Let's look at, at, at Genesis 2.16, all right? We're going to park here for a minute because it's really helpful. After God made the world and cultivated the Garden of Eden, he put the man and the woman in the garden and told them to work it and keep it. And here are his instructions about dinner. Genesis 2.16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, they will certain, you will certainly die. Notice, boundaries and freedom. Uh, the boundary is the tree of the, light, of the knowledge of good and evil. It's off limits. But apart from that, you can eat anything you want freely. God wove this freedom into creation. There's a connection between the freedom and God's will of decree. We understand that. We'll let that sit for just a minute. But choose freely anything you want. Eat anything you want except from that tree. So picture it here. I'm going to borrow from Gary Friesen for a minute. Adam and Eve are working together in the garden. It's a beautiful day. Of course, it's a beautiful day. It's the Garden of Eden. They're working together. They're working and keeping the garden just like God commanded. It's Adam's there and Eve is partnering with him in this great work. Uh, and they decided that that night that Eve was going to make supper. Adam and Eve, they're a pretty traditional couple. So about 4.30 in the afternoon, Eve uh, leaves Adam at his work and goes to put some things together for dinner. And at 6 o'clock, Adam finds her, and and he's hungry, and he finds Eve staring at three trees, an apple tree, a banana tree, and an orange tree. And he says to Eve, what are you doing? And she says, I'm thinking about what we're going to eat for supper. What do you think God wants us to eat for supper today? I mean, I want his perfect choice for us today. I want God's plan A. Which do you think? I don't want to miss the will of God. Which tree do you think would be better the best for us to eat and adam says i don't know let's ask god so they ask god and god says you are free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it you will certainly die that's all he says and eve is just a little frustrated because God speaks as if that's the answer to her question, as if that's all she needs. She wants him to tell her apples, oranges, or bananas. But he keeps saying, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Really? Really? Any tree within the biblical boundaries, you can have any tree that you want. So they made a fruit salad and that was the end of the story. Here's some more examples of of freedom within these biblical boundaries. Deuteronomy 14, God gives some specific instructions to the people about what to do with the tithe from their fields. It's a unique uh, command in Scripture. In Deuteronomy 14, they were to take 10% of the first fruits of of their crops, and they were to eat it at a celebratory dinner. They were to eat it in God's presence around the tabernacle or around the temple. Some of the 10% they were supposed to set aside for the Levites and the poor, but some of it was for this celebratory dinner. Now, in Deuteronomy 14, Moses is thinking about a day in the future, in his future, not ours, but a day in his future uh, when the people would live so far away from where the temple was that it'd be really hard to bring their crops that far. So he, he makes provision for this. Sell your crops, the 10%, get silver, carry the silver, it's a lot easier to carry the silver, to where the temple is, and then there buy food to eat this celebratory dinner. Look at at, uh, Deuteronomy 14, 26. 
Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Imagine this is sort of Thanksgiving feast. Here's the harvest, and we're going to feast to celebrate the end of the harvest season. And the question is, what should you eat for dinner? What should you eat? You want to do God's plan A? You want to have his, his will, his, his best? What does God say? Eat anything you want. Do you want beef? Buy beef. Do you want lamb? Buy lamb. Do you want wine? Do you want anything you want? Here are biblical boundaries, the feast, and the freedom within it. Whatever you want to eat, go ahead and buy it. Two more examples, Deuteronomy 23, 15, and 16. This is about foreign slaves who fled to Israel. If a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand him over to his master. Let him live among you wherever he likes and in whatever town he chooses. Do not oppress him. Biblical boundary, um, don't oppress him. And freedom, let him live wherever he wants. All right? The last example, we read this passage last week about marriage, 1 Corinthians 7.39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes. But... He must belong to the Lord. Biblical boundary, he must belong to the Lord. Freedom to choose anyone you want. Who do I want to marry? Hmm. Well, there's a biblical boundary. Inside that, choose. And so honor God. Take the freedom that God has given you. Augustine said it this way. He said, love God with all your heart and then do whatever you want seems a bit over the top, doesn't it? But I think it fits within it's the keeping of the freedom and the boundaries that God gives. There's freedom, and with that freedom comes responsibility, which leads me to step number three. Step number three in the architecture of wise decision-making, make a wise choice. Make a wise choice. I want to unpack this in a couple of ways. First, I want to show you an example or two from the Bible of God's people making decisions this way according to wisdom. And then second, I want to talk to you about the ingredients in a wise choice. So first, the examples. I'm going to give you these examples so you know this is how God wants his people to make decisions, by wisdom. Classic illustration, of course, in the Bible is Solomon. The story is in 1 Kings 3. When Solomon becomes king, God offered him the opportunity to ask me anything you want and I will give it to you. What do you want? And Solomon says, I want wisdom. And God honored and blessed that choice. God gave Solomon wisdom so that according to verse 9 of 1 Kings 3, he would govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. Wisdom. It's how, how God wanted Solomon to lead. How many decisions do you think a king would have to make? <laughs> hundreds. Hundreds. A month. And, and how does God want Solomon to do it? With the wisdom that he has given him. Uh, we'll see, you see echoes of that in James 1. James tells us, if anybody lacks wisdom, ask of God, and God will give it to you. We'll come back to that in a minute. When, when Jesus sent his disciples out on one of their first missionary tours, he told them to be wise. Matthew 10:16. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be wise. Make decisions according to wisdom. One more, Philippians 2, 25 and 26. Paul writes in this letter about sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi. 
So Paul was uh, in Rome in prison, and the Philippians were concerned about him. They sent him uh, money, and uh, they sent him Epaphroditus to help take care of him. And Paul writes Philippians as a thank you letter back to Philippi. And uh, he sends Epaphroditus back, and he's explaining to them why he sent Epaphroditus back to them. Look at verse 26, 25. But I think, Paul says, it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you in his distress because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. I like to read that, the Apostle Paul, this great champion. Did he ever get sorry or discouraged? To spare me sorrow upon sorrow, God spared my friend Epaphroditus. Therefore, I am all the more eager, the text says, to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Paul is human too. He has some little anxiety here. He also wrote not to be anxious about anything, but apparently he's a little anxious here. We'll puzzle that out some other day. Here's Paul's considered judgment. It would be wise for Epaphroditus to return to Philippi because the people there are worried about him. Maybe they're upset that he was sick. So Paul's sending him back, not because he was unhelpful, but because the Philippians were apparently worried about him. He's making a wise decision and he's explaining his wise decision. There's some examples I could give you more. Let's talk about wise decisions. What constitutes a wise decision? Um, the Bible suggests four sources of wisdom. I'll give them to you quickly. Four places to grow in wisdom. Number one, ask God for it. Ask God for wisdom. James 1, God gives wisdom to those who ask. Second, we look for wisdom in the Bible. We already talked about this. The Bible gives us commands. The commands point us in directions. Uh, or the Bible teaches us how to think about things, what to value, what sort of priorities to set. Third, outside research. Nehemiah and Joshua are two leaders in the Old Testament who both relied on the reports of spies or engineers uh, or researchers to make a good decision. Fourth, wise counselors. Other people who can help you make a wise decision. People who can help you think through what you're contemplating. So ask God, search the scriptures, do outside research, talk to wise counselors, and make a decision. Here's step number four, the last step in making a wise decision. Trust God to be at work. Trust God to be at work. Here's where God's will of decree fits in. God's will of desire tells us to look in the Bible. God's will of decree helps us. We walk by faith. We accept the freedom to choose that God has given us. We search the scripture for the boundaries. We acquire as much wisdom as we can, and we decide. And then we trust God that when he says he works out all things for good for those who love him or are called according to his purpose, we trust that he means it, that he's able to do that, that he will do that. We make a decision, and we trust God. We leave it in his hands. Some of the decisions that we make will be wise and have wonderfully pleasant results. Some of them will be terrible, and most of them will be mixed. But God works in and through all of them for his glory and for our good. And so we decide, and we trust him in the midst of it. Which of those four steps do you think you find most challenging? Uh, I think the freedom part should give you some relief. 
When God says, do what you like, he means it. He means it. He says, do what you like, he means it. Marry the person who's a believer that you want to marry. Eat what you want. Live where you want. Be free. That should give you some relief. Steps one and three about biblical boundaries and wisdom, you'll grow in those over the years. Ask people in our church who are over 70 about this. They'll tell you about decisions if they could. They would go back and change. They're better now at making wise decisions. Do you know why they're better at making wise decisions? Because they have 70 years of experience of making foolish decisions. They're better at it. They, they know the scriptures better. They, they, uh, uh, they've grown in wisdom. You will grow in wisdom. You'll grow in your seeing the scriptures. You'll get better at this. I've told you before about how I enjoy watching uh, Star Trek. I want to finish by telling you about a particular episode. It's about Jean-Luc Picard, the greatest captain of the Enterprise that ever lived. Um, captain, Picard, uh, captain Picard has a mechanical heart. And uh, the reason that he has a mechanical heart, well, uh, you know, it's in the future. They were really good at making mechanical hearts. He has a mechanical heart, but in this particular episode, as it opens, his mechanical heart begins to fail, and they're having trouble fixing it. He may actually die. While he's laying in sickbay, in, uh, he thinks about how he got his heart. He's, he's in his, I don't know, 60s at the time. When he was in his 20s, there was a fight. It was a bar brawl, and Jean-Luc Picard was involved in this bar brawl. He, he, he got involved, and it was stupid. It was, it was just stupid. It was a dumb argument, and he got involved in it. And while they were in this bar brawl, somebody picked up a, a knife and stabbed him in the back right through his heart, shredded his heart, and so they had to put a mechanical heart in. And when his mechanical heart is failing, he begins to regret that decision. He, he starts to lament the impulsiveness and the temper that he had as a young man that led him into that fight. So he's offered the opportunity through the magic of space. He's offered the opportunity to see what his life would be like if his younger self was wise like he was as an older self. If he had the wisdom when he's 20 that he has now when he's 60, how would his life be different? So he's offered an opportunity to see that and he, and he doesn't like it at all. If he had the same sort of reserve and control and patience that he has now at 60 when he was 20, his life would be very different. He never would have made a, been a, made a captain. He would have never gotten a chance to lead. What he learned is that the flip side of that impulsiveness that he lamented when he was 20 is actually a boldness, a decisive spirit that is important to the leadership that he now exhibits. And without it, without that impulsiveness at 20, he languished in the military. Be careful, brothers and sisters, be careful of wishing too much of your past away. I know that you made bad decisions. Some of you made terrible decisions. You are suffering now the consequences of the terrible decisions that you made. But who you are is a product of God working through the good, the bad, and the ugly decisions that you've made. Make less bad decisions. Make less ugly decisions. Do that. But recognize that God works through good, bad, and ugly to make us the people that we are. 
He accomplishes purposes when we are wise, and he accomplishes his purposes despite the fact that we are often foolish. That's part of his power as sovereign Lord of creation. And actually, it's the power that moves us forward in making wise decisions. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your mercy to us, your mercy of which we are unworthy. Lord, we sit here today on January 12th, 2020, and we are the product of so many choices that we have made. Some of them we look back on and we rejoice in the wisdom of them and the kindness that you gave us uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago that, that led to us to the point where we are. And we're so thankful. We're so thankful. Some of us this morning here are just burdened by deep regret and sorrow. We have done lamentable things. Comfort us, we pray, by reminding us of your sovereign authority that you do indeed work out all things together for the good of those who love you. Lord, we, we won't rejoice in our foolishness, but we will rejoice in your kindness in the midst of our folly. Help us to be people who are wise. Raise up in our congregation, we pray, wise counselors who will speak graciously, carefully uh, to us. Give us humble hearts, open ears to listen to the wisdom of those who have walked with you for many, many years. Glorify your name in our midst through our wise decisions, we pray in Christ's name, amen.